This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Bill Shutt was recorded in October of 2021. But now to the business at hand. I'm very pleased to have back with us Bill Shutt. Uh, he is a science writer by trade. He is also the American Museum of Natural History zoologist. Does a lot of work. We had him on a few years ago with a fascinating work called Cannibalism, which was the New York Times Editor's Choice and a Goodreads Reader's Choice Award finalist and an Amazon Best Book of the Year. But a brand new work uh, called Pump. A Natural History of the Heart. It should be a fascinating conversation indeed. Uh, Bill, how are you, my friend? I'm really good. Nice to be back, Warren. I'm good talking to you. Well, we're very pleased that, uh, obviously, uh, you made it through the pandemic, or you're fighting it through. Hopefully, we're nearing the other side. I'm curious, as you were working on this book, was a lot of the writing done uh, while you were in isolation, or were you way down the road already on it? No, uh, thankfully, I was able. You know, a lot of this book got written, uh, you know, in the in the season or so before COVID hit. So I was able to travel around a bit. Uh, luckily, especially going up to places like uh, uh, to Harvard and to Worcester Polytech to interview uh, researchers who who happened to be working on some really neat, um, innovative cardiac medicine uh, procedures. Well, you have a, a long history uh, of writing about science, and you were very involved in the scientific community from a variety of different angles. Maybe if you would, share with our Lewis at Large listeners the path uh, that took you there. For example, what were some of the first things you did out of school and the path that led you, in essence, to being an independent writer as you are? Wow, um, great question. Uh, let's see, how long do you have here? 20 minutes? I don't know if that's going to work. Um Let's see. I did my undergraduate degrees in 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 biology, and uh, and so uh, afterwards, I right after that, I I um, went to up to SUNY Geneseo for a master's degree. I had done my undergrad degree at Long Island University, where I wound up teaching for twenty two years. Um, and there was a gap after I got my master's, and um, and so I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for some time in in, in New Jersey. And then at a certain point, my wife said, listen, I don't want to hear down the road that you wanted to go back to school and, and, and study zoology and, and, and didn't do it. So if you want to do it, do it now. So the opportunity arose. I, took a, uh, I entered into the Ph.D. program at Cornell University uh, at, in Ithaca and uh, wound up studying bats. And I've always been into the macabre. And so it didn't take long out of the 1,400-plus bats that are that, that species that exist uh, to to sort of um, start looking at vampires, and there are three of those. And and so I wrote a lot of papers on vampire bats. I got really lucky because at the time, this is the early 1990s, about 99 percent of what was known about bats, about vampire bats rather, uh, was known about one of, of the three species, and that was the common vampire bat. The other two were were in a sense. Um, research-wise, open books, and, uh, and and so I was able to go in and show that there were some serious differences between them, and and not a lot of scientists working on 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 bats really paid much attention to that. Although in some of the countries where these bats live, 
you know, the research, the researchers down there knew that there were differences, but, but I was able to go in and, and show these and bring these guys on as co-authors. And so I wrote a lot of papers and, and some book chapters on vampire bats and other aspects of bat biology. And then the opportunity um, arose by, by just by chance to, um, to start to write popular science books. And, and I love, you know, I love my role as a, as a teacher, and I think that one of the things I like to do is make my, uh, make my lecturers you know, take complex topics like human anatomy, which I taught for 20 years plus, turn them into something that is more or less jargon-free and, and understandable by everybody in the class. And I, and I tried to take the same type of tact when I, when I began writing popular science books. So I took a topic like, uh, like blood feeding uh, and then cannibalism afterwards uh, and, and demystified it, put a zoological slant on it, make it entertaining, uh, put in some humor where appropriate. And then the opportunity came up to... Um, to, to, to write my third nonfiction book, and my editor at Algonquin and, and my agent suggested that I that I look at something a bit more mainstream, and and one of the suggestions was the heart. And then you know initially I thought, no way, this has been done. There's so many books about the heart out there, but when I started to research the the question, I, I realized that there was really nothing. There were no books out there that that moved through the animal kingdom, telling these kinds of neat stories. This is not an encyclopedia. I spent a lot of time working on, on variation in the heart and circulatory system in, in animals, but especially as, it, as, as, it, as regards to um, medical benefits that are now being, um, being, being looked at um, when you look at, at, at specific animals like, um, you know, the... Uh, the, the Burmese python or, uh, or little zebrafish that you have in your aquaria. And so it, it was really fascinating. I was able to go in and look at history, and there's some crazy, uh, strange history that kept me satisfied as far as, like, my, um, you know, my, um, my, my love of the sort of offbeat and, and, and memorably weird. Um, and then to move into what's taking place in the future, we hope, with regard to, to cardiac medicine, so it was a it was a real learning experience for me. But I, I tried to make it as entertaining as possible. Indeed, uh, obviously, when you say the word heart, it gives everybody pause. Uh, we all want our heart to be healthy. Obviously, what uh, if you can? Because again, like as you mentioned, uh, we're not talking within the work uh, pump. A natural history of the heart. This isn't just the human heart. You're examining uh, the role of the heart in a wide variety uh, of the animal kingdom. I'm curious as to, in a general sense, what do all hearts in all living things sort of have in common, so to speak? And then maybe we can break down some of the differences and what can we learn? What do we learn about the human heart uh, specifically from some of the animal kingdom? Well, uh, well, all hearts. Now, now, if you're a cardiac surgeon, you might not consider this uh, the, some of the some of the organs in something like an earthworm or, uh, or 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 an insect to be hearts. But you know, for my book, what, what we're talking about here is a is, is a pump, a muscular pump, and and what this muscular pump does when when it contracts, it's hollow. And if you can, you can almost envision a water balloon and your fingers wrapped around this water balloon are, are muscle fibers. And when they contract, they squeeze on that water balloon. Well, it's the same thing if you're looking at, uh, at, a, at a complex heart like ours or a simple heart like something in a, 
you know, um, in, in, in a nerve form, for example. Uh, and they send, that when, they, when they contract, they send the liquid around the body. And that liquid is carrying generally oxygen and picking up and delivering it to, to tissues and organs and picking up carbon dioxide, which is, if it accumulates, uh, is deadly. At the same token, by the same token, the, the liquid is delivering nutrients and, and it's picking up waste products that the cell produces when it's doing its cell thing. Um, so in order, you know, in, in order for organisms to have evolved into any type of size at all, you needed a way to move that material around, and that's what hearts and circulatory systems do, whether you're talking about an insect or whether you're talking about, you know, a giraffe. Um, and, and one of the key points that, that I try to make in this book is we have this tendency to, to believe that our uh, our organs, our, our behavior. This is the pinnacle of evolution, and everything else is somewhat defective. And, and I really want my readers to come away from this book not feeling like that, because even though there are these vast differences, especially in the animals that don't have backbones, where, where hearts and circulatory systems evolved, I believe, many times, you know, the, this is, these structures all do the same thing, and they do it well. And, and so you can't sort of point at, a, at an insect uh, at, 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 at the heart-like structures in insects and go, well, you know, they're inferior. No, no they work very, very well at, at what they've evolved to do. You just joined us. Yours truly, Warner Lewis from the Flight Deck, uh, as always, of Lewis at Large. And uh, pleased to have with us uh, extraordinary and award-winning uh, science writer Bill Shutt. He is also the American Museum of Natural History zoologist. Uh, he is a teacher. He is a writer. He has been on uh, our air before uh, with his 2017 book called Cannibalism. But we're focused today uh, on a unique work called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Bill, uh, boy, when we when we think about the heart, and I guess for this particular question, I'll limit it to human research. But right now, for example, uh, in 2021, uh, is our understanding of and our research about the heart, uh, or do we pretty much know what we need to know, or are we learning new things all the time in terms of how to handle, for example, uh, a, a cardiac arrest or some of the issues that come up with the heart. Where are we in terms of that evolution? Well, there's a tremendous amount of research that is going on. And as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, to me, I was surprised and, and kind of thrilled that a lot of it has to do with, uh, with some of the examples that I'm able to look at in the animal kingdom. Um, so, for example... You mentioned uh, you mentioned say say heart attacks or that or, or, or that type of of problem, and and a lot of times those are caused by you know the heart is is living tissue a lot of it is muscle and it is supplied by coronary arteries and and drained by by coronary veins so they supply that that living tissue with oxygen and nutrients just like I mentioned before. Um, the problem is is if you get a clot in one of them or they close up they constrict and shut off the flow then the tissue that's downstream of that blockage is going to, uh, can eventually die uh, if, it, if, if that circulation is not restored. And when it grows back, it's not contractile, which means that, in a sense, the, the little tiny parts of this pump or, or large parts are, are not functional anymore. And, and so that has been a real, real problem amongst many that I talk about in this book. Uh, donor, you know, finding donor hearts is, a, is, a, is another one that I spend quite a bit of time on and, and the alternatives to, to, to heart donors. But in any event, um, there is a fish that is, 
that, that is found in many tropical aquaria called a, called a zebrafish. And this fish, if you were to snip off 20% of its heart mass, and, and, and this happens, let's say, if it's uh, attacked by a, by a larger fish, or if a researcher comes along and, and, and snips a piece of it off. So 20% of the heart is removed, and the heart immediately seals itself off, so there's very little blood loss. And then when it grows back and heals, it's completely functional. So what is it about the zebrafish heart? And they're about 85%, 87% of the uh, genetically similar to humans. We think of the zebrafish as not human at all. But in reality, genetically, it's similar. What is it about the zebrafish that allows it to, to, to regrow functional heart tissue where that just doesn't happen in humans? And there is active research looking into the, the, the substances that, um, and, and, the, and the way that the cells grow and the way that stem cells move into this area uh, or, or cells that are not stem cells start to regrow uh, in ways that you don't see in humans. And how can we now apply that type of technology uh, to, to, to medicine uh, to, help, uh, to help people? Bill, how do we know to zero in on the zebrafish? How, that, that's one of the things about science that has always fascinated me. Uh, we had uh, a marine biologist on a while back talking about the value uh, of the blood found uh, in a horseshoe crab and its, its mm. importance to research. Who, put, who did the math that said, you know what, that zebrafish is the what what happens within the heart of that zebrafish uh, is important. How do we how do we know that? Sure, just I'm sure our listeners would wonder sometimes how in the world do they know that? Well, I, I'm I'm speculating here, but somebody has a uh, a, a, a fish that uh, in their in their aquarium uh, that gets attacked by another fish and it recovers, and 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 somebody makes a phone call to uh, someone else. Or, you know, like I said speculation here but there's there are a lot of people out there who are zoologists who are looking at animals and and we get asked this question all the time you know and and i'll bring up another one is is uh, burmese python you know in, there are possibly a million burmese pythons now uh, creeping around the florida everglades and these are uh, the, these uh, these are species that were were released by accidents. A lot of people uh, did this. Their, their pets got too big. They released them in the wild. And now they're this horrible invasive species that's, um, that, that is uh, killing uh, many of the different animals that live in the Everglades. So somebody obviously saw these things, dissected some of them, and realized that their hearts grow 40% in size after they have a meal. You know, when, when we think in terms of, of uh, enlarged right. heart. We, we think bad, but th- this is healthy heart tissue. So now you have researchers who went through all of the sort of permitting um, uh, hurdles that they had to, to, to do to collect uh, a, a, an invasive species and transport it across state lines in order to do this type of research where they're now trying to look at what is it about the, the, the what, what types of materials and chemicals are found in, in, the, in the circulatory system of these uh, snakes, after they have a meal, that allows their heart to grow healthy heart tissue without exercise. And this is the type of thing that we'd like to apply to, to, to humans. Because after a cardiac event, 
a lot, you know, one of the ways that you make your heart stronger is that you, you exercise. You, they will put you on an exercise regime. But there are some people whose hearts are so weak or they have other problems, medical problems, that they can't do these types of exercise programs. So could it, in the future, could we possibly be able to administer some type of, um, of substance to them that allows their heart to grow without the, the normally required exercise? These are the types of things that, that, that scientists are now working on. You know, we used to uh, always get these questions like, yeah, you're working on these cool animals, but what's the benefit to me? You know, how does this, you're looking at, at, at pythons, how does that help my grandmother? And in reality, there are a lot of folks that, that are out there that are doing just that. And so, I, so, so those were the examples in this book that I paid particular attention to and there are you know there's a nice laundry list of those indeed i i don't uh, i don't want to put you on the spot here because i know you're i know you're a zoologist you're not a veterinarian but do does is it possible do species of animals do they have heart does a fish can a fish have a heart attack mm. can an earthworm have a heart attack i mean i've heard, yeah, I've I, heard of dogs having them before but what yeah, about probably because animals? of diet yeah yeah uh you know, you know, when 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 organisms get old, no matter if you're talking about a human or a dog or a, or you know a porcupine or an insect, their their um their organ systems start to break down, and and um and so the heart being as important as it is, yes, it does break down. But it, but but if but you're if you're talking about a dog getting a heart attack, it's probably because one, it's not getting the right amount of exercise, and two, its diet is you know you're giving it table scraps and and so it's eating things that it normally wouldn't eat. So in the wild, I don't think you have the types of of, of things like you know high blood pressure caused by diet or or or, or um you know you know block atherosclerotic blockages caused by uh you know by by uh you know, a lizard eating the wrong food, um, but it's more uh, uh, sort of a, it breaks. They, they break down normally with age uh, and disease, uh, but also if you have them as pets, that's where you're that's where you're running into the types of problems that are sort of human generated. Yeah, Bill. What uh, again? You've done a lot of research on this, but what what is uh, were there a couple of headlines that came out of this? What what did you learn not only about the heart, but maybe our understanding of it or misunderstanding of it and its role and again within this natural history of the heart what was one of maybe a big headline for you oh boy uh, let's see um a, a big headline well uh, avoid locks lockstep following of, of of any type of um of, of things that don't make sense you know and for 1500 years um medical Science was was really at a standstill because of the the adherence of the of the forced adherence of the scientific community to the teachings of a, of, a, of a second century Roman surgeon, and and that was because primarily because once his words and there were three million of them were finally translated into Latin, they they, they took on a uh, a Christian slant, and the Western Church thought that was great, and so. So research stopped, and so for 1,500 years, this mistake-laden, uh, the, the mistake-laden teachings of this of, of this Roman were looked upon as uh, as sort of law. You didn't do research; you just followed the wor- the words of Galen, and then he got so much wrong, mainly because he wasn't able to study human bodies. He was, you know, he had to he had to make his uh, 
he he wrote based on 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 work with animals, but he was talking about you know trying to explain things in humans and just got a whole lot wrong from the fact that uh, you know arteries contained air to the to the to the idea of these four humors that you could cure anything and 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 mental and physical health was all based on balancing the four humors and and that's why you had bloodletting for for, for more than fifteen hundred years you know the idea that you you want to keep these these substances in balance, uh, and 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 by doing so, you could. You know, there was no, no one knew where diseases came from or men, mental illness, but they fell back on these um, on these old, old, old. And we're talking about from even way before Galen ideas about how the body worked. So, uh, so, so I guess a, a, a key headline for me is to to you know as a warning to to avoid the sort of lockstep behavior in in any field. Right. What about, uh, and, I'll, and I'll take this back to medicine again, in, in your opinion and based on what you've learned and, and, and your knowledge, do you see that the heart transplant becomes more of an alternative now, or are we now, do we have surgical techniques and medicine and other technology that can, is actually, it's better just to repair the one that's already damaged or has an issue? Yeah, great question. And the, the, the problem, and, and, I, and I go into this in a, uh, in a chapter called Ode to Baby Fay, and, 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 and some of us may, may remember that in 1984, uh, a, a surgeon in Loma Linda, California, transplanted a baboon heart, an infant baboon heart, into a, a desperately ill um, infant known as Baby Fay. And this got worldwide media attention. And, and the reason that, uh, that, that, that Leonard Bailey, who was the physician, did this surgery was not because he was looking for fame. It was because there were no donor hearts for infants at the time. And so tremendous amount of media attention. And so unfortunately, Baby Fay uh, died 20 days after, the, after the, the, the surgery for reasons that I get into in the book that, that, that really don't have anything to do with, with rejection of that baboon heart. But the so so yes, tragic. But what came out of that was a lot of research on infant cardiac um, d- diseases and 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 mal you know malformed hearts and things like that. And so that today, not only would so Leonard Bailey never did another baboon to human transplant, a xenotransplant. He did three hundred infant transplants because of the notoriety and and the media coverage. They then began to get hearts donor hearts of, of infants that, that, that died. Um, so that was a big plus. And, and, and so from this tragic event came this new um, sort of a, a new ability to, 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 have, to, to transplant human hearts. But the other thing is that the, the baby face story spurred on other researchers to try to come up with ways to, uh, to correct the heart defects that, that were going to kill baby Faye and almost killed it the night before the transplant. So we still have the problem, and this I'm talking in general now, of, of not enough donors for organs. And I'm not just talking about hearts, I'm talking about kidneys and, and, and livers and things. So thousands of people die on lists every year waiting for, for organs because of, um, you know, you need to match the tissue, you need to match the blood type, you have to keep this thing refrigerated, you maybe have to move it across the country. So, so there are people who, who die waiting. And so I was lucky enough to be able to get into the laboratories of, of several different researchers, one of them being Harold Ott, and, and he realizes the problem with not enough, not enough donor hearts. And, and what he's doing is 
he's taking cadaver hearts. So let's say instead of when you pass away, instead of donating your heart to a, a medical school, you donate your heart to a, a specific group who are now going to do what I'm going to describe to you. They take the heart, this donor heart, and they put it through this, in a sense, a, a, a drip where a, a type of detergent is passing through this heart. And as, it, as, it, as the detergent passes through the heart, it washes away all of the cellular material that you, if I were to put this heart into you, that your body would reject, that, 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 you, that you'd have an immune response to. And what's left is this ghostly white model of a heart that's built of connective tissue. A lot of it is collagen. And your body's not going to re- reject that. So, so what Odd is trying to do and what he wants to do is this, is to, so you're going to be a heart recipient. You come into the office, you, you, he takes a sample of, uh, of, of cells from your arm, skin cells, fibroblasts. He now converts those into stem cells. This technology exists. Stem cells, as you know, can be stimulated by the body to turn into any type of cell. So he's going to stimulate these stem cells to become cardiac muscle cells. And now he takes those cardiac muscle cells that he's grown in culture and embeds them onto this model that he has of this heart. And once this takes and once this grows, then he implants that heart into your body. So in a sense, you're growing your own organ or, or you know, you know this, is, this is just incredible stuff. So I said, how long before you think this is going to be uh, you know, done on, a, on a, a regular basis? He said, within 10 years. You know, wow. and that just absolutely blew me away. Yeah, wow, that is something. Uh, wow, that's a that's a that's a great uh, thing to sort of wind up here with. Uh, uh, indeed, what a fascinating work! Uh, it is called Pump: A Natural History of the Heart by again a science writer and well-known science writer and American Museum of Natural History zoologist Bill Shutt. Bill, uh, before we get out of here, uh, you've got done a lot of writing. How can people find out more uh, about some of the work that you've done and also pick up a copy of Pump? Um, let's see. Well, you can, you can, my website is BillShutt.com. I'm also on Twitter at BillShuttBooks and, um, and Facebook at BillShuttAuthor. I've got a, a, a Facebook page. Uh, but Pump is being sold everywhere in, in any format, so you can pick it up uh, you know, at, at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or wherever books are sold. Hey, thanks for sharing uh, these insights with us. This is a, some fascinating stuff and some hopeful things as well, and appreciate uh, having you on in the past. and would like to have you back on again in the future uh, with your next project. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm working on a book on teeth, so I'd love okay. to be on it. <laughs> right. I wish you luck in that. Uh, Hope to talk to you soon. Uh, Will do. And we will be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. Bill, thank you so much. Werner, you're welcome. Really nice talking to you. Great question. Okay, buddy. We will do it again. Thanks. All right. Take care. If you, right. send, me, if you send me the link, I'll, I'll, um, put it, you know, I'll spread it around. Gotcha. I'll let you know when it's on the air, and I'll let Amanda know, too. Okay, terrific. Thank you. All righty, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.